Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 to start. Well, Merry Remembrance of Jesus' Birthday Day today, or Christmas Eve. It's one of the two most important events in human history, along with the crucifixion and resurrection. Today we're going to try to present the account of Christ's birth in a chronological fashion, an orderly fashion, uh, just like you kind of saw the play, the children's play uh, last week, which they did a really good job. It's just the simplicity of the Bible message. So we're going to start in Luke 1, starting with verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. A few things here. In verse 27, it speaks about the throne of David. He had to come from, the Messiah had to come from David's bloodline. I want to read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which I don't think we can get, ever get too much of this particular scripture. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, the government being on his shoulders and no end to the peace is obviously a future fulfillment. It hasn't happened yet. But you see that uh, the Christ had to come from the bloodline of David. And also you see these terms used to describe him. Everlasting Father, uh, Wonderful Counselor, uh, Mighty God. So you see that there's deity involved in this before he was even born or came to the earth. A little bit about the angels. We all have seen those pictures. Maybe some of them, we have them in our house, of the, the chubby little fat-faced kids with the little ringlets and the tiny wings. And that's the picture that a lot of people have of angels. But angels are powerful creatures. You know, whenever an angel appeared to somebody, they were taken aback. They were mighty creatures. They were, they're supernatural. They're spiritual creatures. And often in the Old Testament, and especially if you see the, look in the book of Revelation, if an angel was on the scene, it had to do with some form of judgment. Something heavy was going to go down when an angel was there. So he had to reassure her. As, as when the angels visited good people, they reassured those people. And the third thing, his name will be called Jesus. Now, that's a translation from the Greek, Iesus, and from the Hebrew, Yehoshua, which means God is salvation. You're starting to see the, the puzzle starting to come together of who this baby is, who this Messiah is, more deity involved. Now, there's a, a multiple instances for divinity of Jesus uh, in the scripture. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
I just want to focus on that last point. And the word, meaning Jesus, was God. In the Greek, it's kai theas ein halagas, which means the word was God. Now, I'm going to move a little bit into apologetics, but I'm not going to stay on it too long, so I don't want to lose anybody here. But uh, it's very interesting because false doctrines have arisen over the years. One of them is called Arianism, which is a belief that Jesus was one of more gods. You know, there was, it was God the Father, and then Jesus was kind of a separate god. And that's actually, in the 1800s, Jehovah Witnesses took that as their doctrine, Arianism. The other one is Sabellianism, which has morphed into what's known as oneness Pentecostalism, where God is God, and then he becomes the Son, and then he becomes the Holy Spirit, and he just keeps changing identities, but it, it kind of denies the Trinity, which is not the Pentecostalism that a lot of us are familiar with. It's a different form. What's interesting here is if it, Sabellianism would, was true, it would be kai halagas ein hatheas, which means the word is equal to God completely, and they're the same person that doesn't say that. Or for Arianism, it would be ka halagas ein theas, because the word order is different. Now, what it is, is it's worded perfectly. Now, most of you by now are saying, I don't know, Joe, it's all Greek to me. You lost me. <laughs> but Bill Mounts, the author of the book I'm reading about learning Greek, does a really great job. He speaks about the article in the Greek, and he speaks about the word order, and he said it couldn't have been ordered more perfectly, and the word was God. Everything that God was, the word was also, literally. Okay, why is this important? Because where you spend eternity is determined by what you believe about Jesus. In 1 John 5, 11 through 12, John says, and this is the testimony, that God has given us the gift of eternal life, and that gift is in his Son. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. Very plain, very simple. And all the different translations of 1 John 5 and John 1, 1, they all agree. There's 25,000 manuscripts, I believe, that were collected over the years of the New Testament, and they're in agreement on these verses. Now, you don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to understand the gospel, but for my purpose as a pastor, I have to know this to back up the claims that I'm making, because today we live in the age of revisionist history. People keep changing history and, and distorting truths. Um, I covered the Da Vinci Code on Easter. Although it's a novel, he makes claims when he's in the public eye that, well, it is a novel, but I really believe this, that somehow uh, over the centuries the disciples and his followers decided, well, we're going to make Jesus God. No, it was that way from the original manuscripts. Things started to change and pull away from that later, understand the order. So Matthew, now let's jump to Matthew because Matthew now takes a different portion. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
betrothal, for us to understand that uh, in our culture, was kind of in the middle of our engagement and marriage. The couple was chaste, but the relationship was considered legally binding. Joseph, no doubt, was hurt by the perceived unfaithfulness of Mary, but he was a good man and not one to make a public example out of her. So he didn't understand right away. That's why the angel had to come to him. He didn't know what was going on. She's pregnant. What's he going to think? She's been unfaithful to me, right? He could have severed the relationship on grounds of adultery, which would have caused her to be a pariah in the community. But the angel saves this from happening. The angel intervenes. And I could see that with us too. God often confirms big plans of ours by extraneous means. He spoke to Joseph as well as he spoke to Mary. There was agreement and harmony in God's plan. Now, those of you who are prayerful people, hopefully we all are, hopefully you're praying for me, but if you're prayerful, you want to know what God's will is for your life. And it's interesting because God does confirm that, usually by other people. You know, out of the blue, somebody will come up to you, right? But something you've been praying about. But then people have used uh, that as an excuse to manipulate people. Well, God told me that you should do this in your life. Well, you look for that confirmation. Sometimes your answer may have to be, well, he didn't tell me yet. I'm still waiting. I've actually seen this in marriage. People try to, uh, people have actually come to other people and said, God told me that you should be my spouse. And the person's like, you know, buzz off. He didn't tell me that. But you, but you see, I've also seen confirmation where, again, amazing things have happened, where I'd be praying about something, and somebody comes to me out of the blue, and it's a confirmation about what I've been praying for, just like in this example with Mary and Joseph. Verse 21, it says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being roused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he, and he called his name Jesus. Again, so you see the, the, uh, the case for, the, for Christ's deity starting to mount. Emmanuel, his name literally means uh, God with us. With us is God. In verse 21, it says, He will save the people from their sins. He will save us from our sins. You know, people have a plethora of reasons of why they think the primary reason that Jesus came to this earth was. And He came and He did a lot of good things to teach. Yeah, His teachings are great. Uh, we live our lives by His teachings. His miracles, He did incredible miracles, not seen by uh, other prophets. He fed the poor, which was always a good thing when people take care of the poor. And he healed the sick, which was also a sign of his compassion. But the most important thing that Jesus came to this earth for was to die for our sins. Without that, we don't have any hope. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, in a nutshell, he said, If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the dead don't rise. And if the dead don't rise, your faith in somebody who said he was going to rise from the dead and he didn't rise is useless. And you're still dead in your sins. So at this point, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And when we die, we go, you know, it, it doesn't look good for us for eternity. I try to put a lot into these messages, some applications, some Greek, some Hebrew, some history, some doctrine, some geography. But the bottom line is the gospel message is a simple message. And it's something that this time of the year we certainly can't miss. It's that 
Jesus was born a miraculous birth. He lived a sinless life. He taught us how to live. He did miracles. He died a substitutionary death on the cross. And he rose again on the third day and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to rule. Nothing more, nothing less. I also want to bring your attention to verse 23. There's a, uh, it's in italics probably in your Bible because it's a, it's a portion out of Isaiah 7:14. Now, let's take this in concert with Luke 134. When Mary was told that she would have a baby, and she said, but I do not know a man. Now, in the Bible, that language meant intimate sexual relationship. She's like, I've never been with a man, so how could I have a baby? It didn't make sense to her. But we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. Now, understand this. In the Septuagint, which was a, uh, an old document, roughly the 3rd century B.C., one of the older writings of the Hebrew, what they did was they took the Hebrew and converted it into the Greek because it uh, translated it, because at the time the Greeks had taken over the known, the known world and it was so the Greeks could understand monotheism, the, the Jewish people's God. Now the word in Hebrew was Alma for virgin. Revisionist history uh, historians have tried to change that and said, well, Alma just means a handmaiden. But follow this. Alma was translated to the Greek and it became the word Parthenos. If you're taking notes, P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S which is a contraction of two words in the Greek. The one word is agamas, and we know that a means not, and gamas meaning married, where we get polygamous, monogamous, right? It's a contraction between that and parthenia, which means virginity. So what it literally means is, in the Greek, is it, she's an unmarried virgin. So it preserves the miraculous birth of the Christ, starting from the ancient documents, and we can, I have a copy of the Septuagint. You can still see that today. Now we're going to go back to Luke because, you know, the chronology, Luke found some things important to put in and Matthew found some things important to put in. John tells us, I believe it's John 21, that Jesus did so much. There was so much about Jesus that all the books in the world couldn't contain everything that he did. So each, each person, Luke, Matthew, each focused on something that they felt was, was important. So together you see the chronology of it. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him at the inn. So we see a lot of the uh, stuff, Christmas cards, the plays, a lot of this stuff is, is very obvious to, to many of us. Now, I have to read, I have to go to Micah 5 too, which is one verse. And it says this, Micah 5.2, a prophet, they call them the minor prophets, lived a few hundred years B.C. He says this in 5.2 about the birth of the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, 
whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. It's a very interesting prophecy, again, written a few hundred years prior to the birth of Christ. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem, there was a Bethlehem in Judah, and there was a Bethlehem in Zebulun, more in the north country. See, this is what God does. He says, watch what I'm going to do. There's going to be a future event that's going to take place, and it's going to be so amazing that I'm going to pinpoint where exactly the Messiah will be born. Bethlehem, small, a small town or village in uh, Judah. At this time, there was two of them, so he actually narrows it down even more. The Messiah can't come from Bethlehem and Zebulun. He's got to be from the one in Judah. And he also says, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. In the Hebrew, that word means from eternity. So it's indicating there that even though Jesus took the form of human flesh, that he, he was, he, that's not the first time he ever existed. He's been around from eternity past. He just came in to our window of opportunity into human history and was born in a manger and in, in, in born in human flesh. But he's always existed. So the question is, how did God get a couple from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem? If you look at a geography, it was a pretty long trip to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The answer is he used the Roman census. And when we covered this in the beginning of Luke, we talked about the Roman census in great detail. This is pretty amazing that God can use any means to fulfill his will. This is a good example of, for those of you who are Bible students, free will, man's free will versus God's sovereignty. People you know, the deep theological people are always arguing, is it God's sovereignty or is it man's free will? Somebody said it best, and I can't remember who it was, that he said, they don't have to be reconciled because they're friends. I know Anthony knows who it is. But uh, it, this, this goes to show you both things happening at the same time. God said the Messiah will be born here. Okay, it doesn't look good. They're in Nazareth. How am I going to get him down here? The Romans said, we're going to have a census because we want to make sure everyone pays the taxes and they're conscripted into the military and all these other reasons. We want to know how many people we have. So you have man's free will. The Romans were going to do it. That's the choice that they made. And God said, I got to get them to Bethlehem. So it's cool how God's sovereignty and man's free will come together into this passage. It's pretty amazing. God says, fine, I'll use it. I'll use whatever. Uh, continuing down in, in verse 8, the introduction to the shepherds now. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. There's that picture again. See the angels, hey, what's this all about? What do we do wrong, right? Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I will bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now this was an interesting thing. He says this will be the sign. Was it that they were going around looking for babies, a bunch of babies? Well, which one is it? Well, this one was going to be in, in literally a feeding trough. There was no room for them. They're in a stable, and all they could do to find shelter and rest for this baby is to put them where the animals would normally feed in the grain. So this would be an odd sight, and it would be one that the shepherds couldn't miss. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. 
And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So who were the first people to see the Christ, the most important person, figure in all human history? The dignitaries? The politicians? The the monarchies? No. It was the shepherds. They were the first ones to see it. Men of little reputation and certainly in those days not a highly respected profession. And we saw that previously when we covered this in Luke last year. God is concerned for all people. Though he loves all people, John 3.16 tells us, he sets the bar to the inconsequential. Now, not from his perspective, because he looks at us all equal, but from our perspective, they were inconsequential, so that all would be welcomed in. He also knows human nature and people's insecurities. Many people want to know, and they ask the question, why would God want me? I'm not holy. Why would God want me? I have a past. Well, congratulations. So does almost all the people in the Bible that God used to glorify himself had a past. Jesus was born in ignominious birth and died an ignominious death. And we see that the message of the cross is open to all. It's all-inclusive. Now, let's go back to Matthew 2. Matthew 2. Here's the introduction that we see of the wise men. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the, the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. You don't have to turn there, but just one verse in Numbers 24:17, uh, widely known from the rabbis back then as a messianic prophecy. It says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Somebody, I didn't count them, but I'll just take their word for it. Apparently there's roughly 300 prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament to the New Testament. So um, I I took a, a course in college called Statistical Reasoning. And I really hated that course. <laughs> it was a tough course. But basically the odds of Jesus fulfilling even a tenth of those prophecies. Remember, you can fake a lot of things, but when you're in the womb, <laughs> you can't tell your mom where to have you. You, know, you can't tell your mom what to name you. You can't t- tell the, your ancestors what bloodline you'll be in. These, these things you just can't fake. So for Jesus to fill uh, just a tenth of these prophecies are considered uh, mathematically impossible that it could be anyone else but him. So that's one of the only things I took from that class. (laughs) Continuing on in verse 3, it says, When Herod the king heard all these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. What's interesting is all Jerusalem was troubled. And we see later that the king, Herod, plots to have, he wants to kill the Messiah because he wants to be the leader. He doesn't want some little baby to grow up and usurp his authority. How paranoid. I mean, it couldn't have been more than 15 or, or 20 years from that point, even if that was the case. But he was so paranoid that he actually sent a, a detachment of troops to kill all the, all the babies within a certain uh, time, year, so that he could make sure he killed the Messiah. Well, why was this a problem to him? Why was all Jerusalem, who was the religious system of the people, concerned about the Messiah, that they didn't want him to come? Well, because... The religious system got cozy. It became a cozy relationship with religion and the world. There was a nice balance between Rome at this point and the religious leaders. Why rock the boat? Is it any different today? What about our society? We're pressured to remove Christmas. You know, what's the real meaning of Christmas? We're pressured to remove uh, Jesus, the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the way of salvation. Or, Or even now people call it it's like Xmas. I don't understand what Xmas means, but I guess X is for Christ. I don't know. You know, we don't want any fundamentals. You know, you fundamentals, you're rocking the boat. You know, this whole exclusivity of Jesus is the only way. That's a problem to us. Don't talk about Jesus. It could be offensive. Well, the way to heaven, I guess, is offensive to some. And Jesus said that the way to heaven is a narrow road and few people find it. Don't rock the boat because most churches are preaching a surface, touchy-feely message. Don't bring your Bibles, some church uh, try to encourage. I tell you what, you know, it's like their attitude is trust us. You don't have to bring the Bible. We'll, we'll give you the verses that we want, and we'll tell you what those verses mean. If a church tells you not to bring your Bible, run. And the reason is because if we start saying, well, we don't want Bibles here. I'm going to tell you what it's all about. Now you're, you're, you're following me for your salvation instead of following the Bible, which is a problem. Because we've seen so many cults, uh, such an explosion of cults, because men elevate themselves to a position above the word of God, and they they brainwash you and spoon-feed you what they want you to be fed. It's not good. So it's pretty sad. You know, but we could make the... Take Jerusalem out and put America in there. You can make the same picture here. Jesus said he will return again, and what will he find? Maybe all America will be troubled at the thought of Jesus' return. And that's the way it's going, it seems. You see the stuff in the news. Okay, Matthew 2, starting with verse 9. It says, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Who were these wise men? In the Greek, the word is magoi. And there's a lot of good research done on who exactly these three men were, these magoi. It's translated into wise men. But at the very least, these guys were dignitaries from either Persia or Arabia. They were coming from the east. But these men had great joy being guided by the star and fell down and worshipped Jesus as a child. 
And you see the difference here because where the shepherds were, the, the location of the baby and, and the age in the original language is a little bit different. So you see that by the time the wise men come, he's a little bit older. So it's not the same uh, picture with the shepherds. But the interesting thing about these wise men was they, they certainly were wise because they traded their earthly treasures for spiritual riches. Matthew 6:19 through 21, Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So these wise men certainly were wise in, in what they had done. But what do you think these men would say uh, today, the real meaning of Christmas is? Would they say it's all about PlayStation 3 or Santa Claus? I just read a statistic that said 86% of Americans believed as a child in Santa Claus. I wonder what that figure is about Christ and the deity of Christ. What is, what is Christmas about? Those new diamond earrings or the drunk fest that we rename Christmas parties? You know, what's it all about? And, uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what is the real meaning of the season? The three gifts. The first one is gold. We all know what gold is. It's a precious metal. It symbolizes royalty. It symbolizes Jesus as a king. Monarchies always had gold in their courts. Frankincense, it's representative of uh, Jesus as a priest. Why? Because frankincense is a fragrant resin used in the religious service by the priests in the Old Testament. Jesus was the high priest, Hebrews says, who sacrificed himself to appease God because of the foulness of sin. And myrrh, the third gift, bitter product used in embalming. Okay? It pictures Jesus as a prophet because a prophet's life, if you followed the prophets you know, uh, in the Old Testament, a pro- including up until John and the Baptist, a prophet's life was characterized by opposition, tribulation, and untimely deaths. So these are the three gifts really have meaning behind them. Going back to Luke 2, going forward to Luke, Luke 2. Verse 34. There's a man named Simeon. Uh, Jesus is at the point where He's getting older now, and uh, he's presented to Simeon. And uh, Simeon says this about Jesus, verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That's interesting, that last verse right there. Sounds like Hebrews 4, when it talks about the Word of God as living and active, power than a two-edged sword, able to divide between uh, bone and marrow and uh, joints and marrow and, and, and spirits and flesh, and is a, a, a thoughts, it, it reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Word of God is living and active and powerful. And this speaks about Jesus, um, like a, a sword would pierce through her own soul, but that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And that's what Jesus did. He got people to get off the fence and make a decision. Are you for God or you're not for God? But one of the things about, he said is, he said, Jesus would be a word spoken against. And in the Greek, the word is antilegomenon. And what that means is 
it would be spoken against Jesus then and continuously. I think it's the Greek present perfect. It's still something that's spoken against, Jesus. And now we really see, see things starting to heat up, especially during the holiday season. All the court battles about Christmas displays and the word Jesus and can you say it in school and all this other kind of stuff going on. But I tell you what, I've seen Bibles with the Board of Education stamp on them. What about church and state, Joe? You know, it's the revisionist historians. They used to be in public schools. I remember people, people telling me that they used to read the Bible as part of their curriculum. I've seen Bibles with the Board of Education of such and such stamped on these Bibles. So it, it, it's, they're trying to change it now and take it away from the public life. But it wasn't always like that. What about the separation of church and state? Well, it didn't exist. In 1801, uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptists, I believe it was in Connecticut, assuring them and making them understand that, uh, that there wouldn't be a state religion to throw out other religions. Now, it was a letter written to these Baptists, but it wasn't ratified. It was not an official legal United States document. And the courts were grabbing for straws in the 60s and took that and used it in their court cases to throw you know, prayer out of school and all that other kind of stuff. So you got to know your history. There's a saying that goes, Though people who don't learn from history are bound to repeat it. Public schools. My son goes to a, a great school. There, you know, there's a lot that, that's offered there. Uh, one problem I have with it is every year they talk about all the different cultures and faiths, but Jesus, you can't talk about Jesus. So they're exclusive of one, but they'll accept all the others. If you follow the Alliance Defense Fund and the uh, American Center for Law and Justice, every day they're fighting court battles to hold the line and defend people of faith. And don't let anyone fool you. It's not just taking Jesus and, and God out of the public schools and the court systems. They want to tell churches how to run their sermons, and uh, they want to uh, deny churches buildings and all this kind of stuff. You've got to follow it. Uh, there's a website called telladf.org, and you can actually see these court battles being fought. So uh, John Gibson wrote a book called The War on Christmas, he actually documents all the, uh, the uh, anti-Christmas rhetoric that comes upon uh, people of faith every year. And the worst is overseas. Ch cheery Christmas message today, isn't it? <laughs> the worst is overseas because if you're a Christian overseas in certain uh, Christian or Islamic countries and communist countries, Christians are persecuted just for believing in Jesus. Pakistan has a law called uh, 295C that if you talk to a Muslim about Christ and he becomes a Christian, you go to jail. It's illegal. Um, Persecution.com speaks about a lot of the things that are going on around the world that we're kind of, we, we don't know about, we're ignorant about. There's a few things that I, I just want to, there's a book that is called The Voice of the Martyrs. It's a periodical that I get. And it just shows around the world what happens to believers just for being believers that we don't realize. In Pakistan, uh, there's a picture of this woman with her children that literally live in a stable because she became a Christian and her husband threw her out and she became an outcast in the village and now she's living in a stable with her children with the animals. Um, Indonesia, there's a picture of a young woman who had her face slashed, there's heavy scars on her because uh, Christian girls were attacked by radical Muslims with machetes because they're believers. Let's see, India. Um, again, the, the machete is the weapon of choice. People are being cut up all the time, losing limbs uh, because of their faith in Jesus. But you know what? They haven't given up on Christ. Uh, these people are really should be examples to us. 
So um, there's my cheeriness part, and I'm going to move on from there. But Thomas Paine had a famous quote. He said, lead, follow, or get out of the way. What do we stand for as a people? What defines us as individuals? Because you have to stand for something, else you stand for nothing. That's what I added. And what kind of existence is that if you stand for nothing? And if we're going to stand for something, why don't we stand for something that yields eternal rewards? All the hobbies that we have, all the things we're into, they're just here for this life. How long do we have on this earth? But eternity is forever. There's no, there's no, it doesn't end. It just keeps going. So for those of you who I won't see until Easter, I'm trying to give you a lot of scripture to chew on. <laughs> is that too crusty? <laughs> that was supposed to come off as encouraging. <laughs> now, I have a good laugh with a lot of my biannual brothers and sisters. We have a good time talking about that. But let's, let's continue on where we left off last week, uh, before, actually the week before. Okay, we're going to go into Luke 21. We're going to finish this up with a few verses uh, in Luke 21. Starting in verse 5. Okay, so let's fast forward to where we left off last week, and we're two days out pretty much from the crucifixion right now at this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. Luke 21, verse 5. Then as some of as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he, Jesus, said, As for these things which you see, the day will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So they're talking about the temple, which doesn't exist right now in Jerusalem, but it did exist you know, up until 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. This temple was one of the great wonders of the world. This, it was, this, um, you know, it was a, a center of worship that God had told the children of Israel to build, and it was designed in exactly the way God wanted. God was the engineer. He actually laid out the blueprints for it, for it to be built. Uh, Herod did a lot of um, uh, reconstruction. Herod did a lot of renovations in the first century. Um, I'm sorry, just before the first century, and then it was destroyed by the Romans. Now, the temple was an interesting uh, place, structure. It had gold overlaid most of it, pure gold overlaid, and it had solid, uh, solid pieces of white marble. Okay, So you had this white marble and this gold that was overlaid. Josephus, the historian, says at certain times of the day when the sun would reflect off of it, it was so bright that it was blinding. You actually had to look away. That's how magnificent the structure was. So what you see is one of the most impressive sights in all of history is only to be destroyed a few years from this conversation and never to be rebuilt again, or it hasn't been for the last 2,000 years. Now, Revelation speaks about the end times, and it talks about, uh, about rising and me measuring the temple. So we see that the temple will be rebuilt in the end times, although you look over there and say, well, what is it, the Dome of the Rock is there, that great mosque, and uh, you know, there's obviously uh, fighting between Jewish and, and Muslims. So people say, no, that's not possible, Joe. Well, log on to templeinstitute.com. It talks about all the preparations that are being made to build that third temple. And you see everything getting set up there. But God's house is destroyed, but God is still there. And people were so concerned, but, but the house, you know, the house is destroyed, the temple. It's where we worship God, but it's going to be gone, and, but God is still there. It's almost like when people say, go to church. 
What is church? Is it a building? What, church, what defines church, ecclesia in the Greek, are the people inside the building. That's what church is. It's about people, not buildings. It's about individuals worshiping God, not about the house itself. So what is inside that building? Now, the disciples asked the questions about the end times, which included Jesus' return. Think of it from their perspective. Like children, they had a lot of questions, and they didn't have the, uh, the benefit of written history like we have. So they had to ask Jesus, you know, what's going to happen from here? You know, you're the Messiah. When are you going to set up your kingdom? How does the temple's destruction fit into this? And when will it happen? And is there a sign that we should be looking for, an obvious sign like the birth, your birth, and your appearance? So these are all the questions that they had out. Verse 8. It says, and he said, take heed that you do not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now, if you go to Matthew 24, which we're not going to this morning, it kind of starts out the same way, right? Now, these, these few verses are a precursor to, to Christ's return as we know it. Some people believe that these verses are uh, during the second half of the tribulation, some people think that it's just prior to the rapture. But we do know this. It, it, it's, these things are going to continue to happen with frequency and intensity. That's the key word, frequency and intensity prior to Jesus coming back. Now, the order is Jesus died on the cross. He was crucified. He was resurrected. He had a 40-day ministry. He ascended into heaven. You had Pentecost where the disciples were the Holy Spirit came upon them. About 2,000 years, which is where we're about now. The next event that takes place is the rapture, the second coming, and the, um, within that second coming, is that, that's, that's, or, or just prior to it, is that seven-year period spoken about in Daniel chapter 9. Okay, verse 8. So he talks about these, um, don't be deceived, many will come in my name. They will say the time is at hand. They will say I am hate. What's very interesting is if you follow, there's a guy, and I think he's coming to Florida. His name is Miranda. He's convincing people that he's the Messiah. And people are actually following him. The guy's got a big following. They think he's the Messiah. David Koresh, remember that whole thing in Waco? He had all those people, you know, hunkered down in that compound, and he said that he was the Messiah. It's like that game show, will the real Messiah please stand up? It can't all be the Messiah. Uh, Jim Jones uh, in Guyana in South America. Now, these aren't... Well, I say these aren't stupid people. They had, in, in the whole thing with Jim Jones, he had a doctor who mixed the cyanide into the drinks that they all drank. They had lawyers. They had professionals. People were deceived. You know, we, think, we tend to think, well, they must have been weak-minded. These were professionals. These were educated people that all went down following these false messiahs. It's Charles Taze Russells, who started the Jehovah Witness movement, he wrote a book called The Time is at Hand. Well, what does it say here? Many will say... The time is drawn near. He writes a book called The Time is at Hand, spelling out prophecies of the end of the world that never came to pass. Right? 
so we're going to see this frequency and intensity. In the 1800s, we saw a huge explosion of Christian cults. If you, if you check that out, you'll see that so many people came and said, look, the church is, is, is apostate, you know, I'm the guy, God gave me the nod, you know, I'm the new guy, follow me. And so many people did that in the 1800s. Religious deception is rampant. We could take a whole service on the thousands of cults and false prophets that are out there. Israel's leadership, uh, see, I'm trying to remember, it was maybe six, seven years back. They made the statement that the man who brings peace today will be our Messiah. And they said he doesn't even have to be Jewish. They're so desperate for peace in Israel that they'll accept somebody to come by who's charismatic enough to make a peace between the Jews and the Muslims, and they'll accept him as their Messiah. Boy, does that fit right into prophecy or what? It talks about the lawless one, the Antichrist, the man of sin, who's going to come on the scene and, and put forth that false peace. And then it says when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. And he's going to do awful things. He's going to set himself up in this new temple and present himself as God. And then all of a sudden Israel is going to look at that and go, oh, man, this isn't good. And you can see this in Thessalonians. You can see it in Daniel 9. You can see it's littered all throughout the Old and the New Testament. Now, the only inoculation against spiritual deception, Jesus is telling us, is knowing the word of God. Verse 9, he says that when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be afraid, for these things must come to pass. But the end will not come immediately. Wars and rumors of wars in, Dan, in uh, Matthew chapter 24. Again, we've always had wars. Man, since the dawn of mankind, there's been wars. Men fight with each other. They kill each other. But again, it's the frequency and intensity. In the advent of nuclear technology, okay, North Korea, Iran, it's, you know, the Internet, it's centrifuges are available, uranium, plutonium, all this stuff is now proliferated, and nobody can keep control of this stuff. You see the propagation and the proliferation of nuclear technology, weapons. So what's going to happen is certainly the intensity is going to be increased because um, nuclear technology can do a lot more than conventional warfare. And also frequency, skirmishes in every part of the globe. What we hear on the news is only just a little taste of all the wars and the, and the ethnic cleansings that are going on around the globe every day. I think that the media here spoon-feeds us stuff to kind of lull us into a false sense of security. Honestly, I don't care about the Hollywood romps of Britney Spears and Paris Hilton. I think that that's not news as far as I'm concerned, but that's the stuff that you see. You know, we need to see really what's going on, right? In verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The word nations in the Greek is ethnos, which is where we get the word ethnicity from, ethnic cleansing. For years, wars have been fought basically for land and power. Now, those of you who were uh, scholars of history, World War II, I believe Hitler and Tojo had an agreement, uh, I believe it was called under Operation Crescent, correct me if I'm wrong. What they were supposed to do is the Germans were going to go east and the Japanese were going to go west. They were going to meet in the middle, go into the Middle East, take the oil and the gasoline and move, move north and take over Russia. But Hitler jumped a gun and went right into uh, Russia. But this was their idea, land and power. Yes, there was the Holocaust, regardless of what Ahmadinejad in Iran says, the Holocaust did exist. And that's pretty scary, that guy, because he wants to start a war so that the 12th imam can come. But the 12th imam can't come until there's a, an awful war that takes place. So he's trying to be the, 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 the bratty kid on the block that's starting trouble, right? So this is what you see. Um, 
Wars have morphed, again, from land and power to destroying people based on ethnicity and religion. You see in the Sudan, the ethnic cleansing there. In Africa, all over Africa, Hezbollah, Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, and Al-Qaeda. These are all ethnic wars. Now, I don't, I hope I'm not, well, I guess maybe I am, but it's just where it is in Scripture. I don't want to frighten people, because if you're in Christ, it all goes away. Understand? So those of you who are getting all nervous now, if you're in Christ, it all goes away. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He comes. He tells you to trust him. He tells you, and I believe really that before it gets really bad, before the tribulation comes, if you're in Christ, Jesus will come for his church and he'll nicely remove us out of here and we'll have a great celebration in the heavenlies. Um, so, th- so, you know, I think I'm, I don't want to get it too high here and get people get nervous about this stuff. In verse 11, it is what it is in the scripture. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. The word for earthquake says like a Greek lesson. Everything, really, the, the, a lot of the English comes from this. So the earthquakes in the Greek is uh, seismoi, which means where we get seismic activity, right? Problems in the earth's crust, tectonic activity, volcanoes, earthquakes, all that stuff comes from that word. Geologists, if you follow geology, they'll tell you that the Earth's crust is its just cracking. It's like an egg, a hard-boiled egg that's been dropped too many times. Just get more cracks and more cracks in the Earth's crust. So volcanoes and earthquakes and stuff, um, on the Richter scale, they're, they're going up, and the frequency is going up. But the cool thing is Chuck Smith said that, it was Chuck Smith who said that, you know that uh, Thanksgiving is coming because you see the Christmas decorations. It's true. And what he means by that is that the rapture comes first. The Lord comes for his people. He takes us out before all these awful things happen. And then uh, sometime later, it comes the second coming. Jesus returns to earth. So that's kind of like Christmas, the, the returning to earth. And Thanksgiving is the rapture of his church. So the more we see these things heat up and build up and all the stuff start start to happen, we know that the second part of it's coming. But the rapture, which there's no sign before, comes previously. So the closer we get to the second coming, we're getting close to the rapture. So that's what that means. Um, Okay, famines, pestilences, famines, millions of kids, you know, a lot of Christians support uh, overseas missions, a lot of us support the things, you put the little picture of the kid on the refrigerator, you make a commitment every month to send to these organizations to feed the children because children are starving. They're literally starving. Um, I think very few people in our country know what it means to starve. When you see the pictures of the little kids with the big bellies, it's not because they're fat. It's because there's malnutrition and their insides are swollen. That's true malnutrition. Here you can get a meal. You know, you can find a meal here in this country. So famines, um, it's going to increase. There's definitely a food distribution problem in the world. And pestilences. Pestilences, not only, um, what is that? You know, pests, like bugs and stuff, but also microorganisms. Pestilences. You see uh, bacteria and viruses and all these things starting to mutate. The E. coli, I spoke about it uh, one Wednesday night, where it used to take 100 little guys to make you sick. Now it only takes 10. So these guys, these little guys are mutating and becoming more dangerous uh, AIDS, can't, we can't get a hold on AIDS because it keeps mutating, keeps changing. Every time we think we got a cure for AIDS, it mutates again. These bugs are nasty. 
And if you go to the doctor, they tell you not to have too many antibiotics because we, we have superbugs now. Superbugs, you know. <laughs> but they, you know, they make you sick and you take antibiotics and, and just a few of them don't die and they mutate and they change and they say, hmm, I'm going to become stronger. And the next time you get that antibiotic, it doesn't work on you. So in the medical community, they're always trying to find new ways of getting better antibiotics because the, the bugs keep their... Isn't it amazing? Those little tiny microbes are figuring out ways to, to, to become stronger and survive the antibiotics. But we could look at this another way too with pestilences. Man keeps tweaking these bugs for bioterror. Man keeps putting in laboratories these little microorganisms and making them stronger and stronger. So, and then they, every once in a while they get released by accident. And, and they mutate. So pestilences are going to increase. So all these things are going to happen. Now, for those of you who are new, I'm just giving you a little taste of the depth that we go into on Sundays. We go into the depth in the scriptures because it's God's word. But putting it all in perspective, if you're in Christ, this stuff doesn't bother me any. It doesn't bother me in the least bit. And being in law enforcement, being on the police department, uh, we're privy to briefings that the public isn't about uh, you know, things that are going on, plots, uh, virus, all this kind of stuff. It doesn't bother me because I'm in Christ. And you can have that same assurance. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's what it's all about. But wrapping it up, the birth of Christ, the incarnation, the incarnation is the most important event that ever interrupted human history from the spiritual dimension. The resurrection is the most important hope-filled event inside of human history because without it there would be no opportunity for redemption. So Christ's birth is important because it led to the crucifixion, the substitutional death on the cross, and the resurrection, because he promised he would rise in three days. They go in hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. And how do we look at Jesus' return? Maybe in ignorance, you know, sometimes in ignorance, some people in wonder, some people in trepidation, some people, eh, unconcerned, not really concerned. But if we're truly in Christ, we should be joyful and expectant. And living our life characteristics of that, joyfulness and expectancy. So this Christmas season, let's put the whole gift thing into perspective. Jesus gave us the greatest gift. That is truly the greatest gift we could ever ask for. What he did on the cross and the word that he left us. And we can open that gift and enjoy that gift every day of our lives. We could do that because that's what he gave us. But sadly, sometimes we choose to open, only open that gift because maybe we think it's only appropriate at certain times of the year. This is really an encouragement for you to seek him and open his word more. Because this world has nothing that can fill what's lacking in your life. Like everything else, those Christmas gifts that you get this year will be, become unfulfilling. Maybe in February, maybe in March, maybe in June. But at some point in time, those, oh, those, I can't wait for this, I can't wait for that. It's, it's human nature. Eh, it's old hat. You know, I can't wait till next Christmas and I get something better. But like water, no matter how much you drink, you eventually get thirsty again. But Jesus is the living water. He who drinks of him, of that water, will never thirst again. Let's pray. Open his